70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of Global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. Hello, pendengar KBS World Radio, dimanapun Anda berada. Perkenalkan, nama saya Rudy Hartono dari Kalimantan Barat. Hello, KBS World Radio listeners all over the world. My name is Rudy Hatono. I live in Kalimantan in Western Indonesia. I was deeply touched by the journey KBS World Radio took in becoming a station loved by all generations. I really want to mention how popular KBS World Radio is where I am. KBS World Radio's websites and social media accounts are especially a big source of inspiration. I think it provided its listeners with a variety of listening options by making a timely transition to new platforms in this day and age of ever-evolving technologies. I wish you will continue to please your listeners through great programs. Warm greetings from Indonesia. Dari Kalimantan, Indonesia. 70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. Tuesday the 28th of February and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon jang Prosecutors have indicted four senior officials from the previous Moon Jae-in administration over the alleged forced deportation of two North Korean sailors in 2019. We'll have more on this story in news briefing shortly. For our in-depth today, we take a closer look at the National Assembly vote from Monday, which narrowly saved Democratic Party Chief Lee Jae-myung from arrest. We look at how this has rocked the party. And finally, for Touch Basin's Hall, we meet the co-translator of a best-selling Korean novel that is set to hit shelves this April. We have all that and more on today's Korea 24. Prosecutors have indicted four ministerial-level figures of the previous administration, This was carried out as investigators suspect they were involved in the forced repatriation of two North Korean fishermen back in 2019. For more on this story and our other headlines from today, I'm joined in the studio by KBS World Radio News Editor Daniel Chair. Daniel, hello. Hello there, jang So four senior officials from the Moon Jae-in administration, they are accused of taking actions to ensure that the two North Koreans who wanted to defect to the South were rejected and returned to the regime. Can you tell us more? Well, on Tuesday, the Seoul Central District Prosecutor's Office indicted former National Security Advisors Chung Yong and Seo Hun, former Presidential Chief of Staff No Young Min, and former Unification Minister Kim Yeon Chul, without pretrial detention on charges of abuse of authority under the National Intelligence Service Act. 
They are accused of issuing orders exceeding the briefs of public officials to forcibly deport the two North Koreans in November 2019, despite their expressed desire to defect. The fishermen are alleged to have killed 16 of their fellow sailors. The four former officials face charges of obstructing the two North Koreans from exercising their right to stand trial under domestic laws and procedures. Sali is also suspected of deleting the sailors' defection request in the government's joint investigation team report and also falsifying the report to make it appear that the probe had ended when it was actually still going. And one of the figures, the former National Security Advisor Cheng Yong, has given a statement lashing out at the prosecution, calling the probe politically motivated. That's right. In a statement released by his lawyer on Tuesday, Chung said prosecutors were applying bias and inconsistent standards and that based on such criteria, seizure of the North Korean fishing boat, interrogation and intel obtained in the process would all be considered illegal. The lawyer accused the prosecution of focusing only on the repatriation itself while turning a blind eye to the potential illegality of other events in the process and claimed the politically motivated investigation proves the current administration is exacting revenge. Let's move on now to the latest on the National Assembly votes, which came on Monday, that gave a narrow margin of victory, saving the main opposition Democratic Party chair, Lee Jae-myung, from arrest. This has, of course, rattled the party. Can you give us the latest? Like you said, a very narrow margin. I wouldn't even spell V in victory for that uh, situation they've had the day, uh, yesterday. Mm. Uh, during a preliminary session, 297 out of the 299 seeing lawmakers cast their ballots on a motion seeking parliamentary consent to arrest a DP chair. At least 149 approvals are needed. The motion was voted down. 139 approved ease arrest. 138 rejected it. Nine were abstentions and 11 were considered invalid. There was prediction by the DP leadership that the motion would be defeated by an overwhelming majority. But the final figures indicate more than 30 lawmakers defied expectations and opposed the DP's push to defeat the motion. A pro-E lawmaker said it's a shocking amount, much higher than the anticipated 10. Another DP lawmaker said the outcome was effectively a vote of no confidence in E. Meanwhile, the DP floor leader, Park Hong-un, said the party leadership will ponder the meaning of the result on the vote, uh, while stressing that the party must not sink further into confusion or division. Well, although Park and the party's leadership reiterated the need, the need for strong solidarity, some in the party said the number of defections is only the tip of the iceberg, stressing the need for the leadership to sternly assess the series of events, while expressing concerns about the party collapsing altogether. The ruling People Power Party said the result shows he is essentially declared politically bankrupt and must consider his future, maybe even considering option of stepping down from the top post. Yes, we'll have a further breakdown of the situation for our in-depth today coming up after this news briefing. Let's shift our focus to a different topic now. Uh, controversies over the appointment process for top government posts. The rival political parties have both called for accountability over the failed appointment of Chung Sun Shin as head of the National Office of Investigation. So what have they been saying? Well, the candidate was deemed unfit for the job in the wake of his son's school violence record resurfacing. This is a major social issue that continues to evoke strong response from the public. We've seen many figures in various fields, including entertainment and sports, completely end their career because mm. of these uh, past uh, instances or records of or 
witnesses coming forward, revealing their ugly past. Mm. Uh, speaking to a KBS radio program on Tuesday, ruling PPP floor leader Chuo Young said those liable for insufficiencies in the vetting process should be held to account. However, he criticized the main opposition for demanding that Justice Minister Han dong step down. And he said it is contradictory for the DP to blame the minister after it disallowed inquiries during screening, calling it surveillance. The DP plans to launch a task force to conduct its own investigation while drawing up a bill aimed at reinforcing the government's personnel vetting process. The bill seeks to bolster the vetting process by including the verification of school violence records for the children of candidates for high-level post, while also requiring such records be submitted in university admissions as well. Let's look at some new real estate data now. The number of unsold homes in South Korea hit a 10-year high as it jumped around 10% in January compared to a month earlier. Can you tell us more? This is a, a strange time for Korea when we've seen property uh, rates uh, go up and sales continue to flourish somewhat. Mm. According to data from the land ministry, 75,359 housing units were left unsold in January, up 10.6% on month to reach the highest since November 2012. 84% of the unsold homes were outside the capital region. The on-month increases were 107 and 10.6% respectively for the capital area and elsewhere. The number of larger units with floor space exceeding 85 square meters that remain unsold surged 25.9 percent. While the amount of unsold smaller units of 85 square meters or less rose 8.8 percent, the government reportedly assessed the current level does not call for state intervention as most of the increases occurred in the suburbs or in regions where sales prices were higher than nearby market prices. Officials also took note of the increased lot sales in Q4, which rose from 51,000 units in the April to June period to 99,000 in the October to December period. In other economic data, real wages in the nation fell for the first time since related statistics began to be compiled. Can you give us more information on this as well? Well, according to the Labor Ministry survey of businesses' workforce, the average monthly salary was estimated at around 3.8 million in 2022, a 4.9% increase in the nominal wage over the same period last year. But in terms of real wage, in which reflects the inflation rate, a worker's monthly salary was found to have slipped 0.2%, the first decline since 2011 when the government began to track such data. Real wage is calculated by dividing the nominal wage rise by the consumer price index. The dip was witnessed after the nation's annual inflation rate of 5.1% surpassed a nominal wage increase. The survey also shows a worker's monthly working hours stood at 158.7 hours on average in 2022, two hours less than the previous year. Shifting gears now, a South Korean defense firm is negotiating the export of ammunition with the U.S. State Department. This comes as Washington seeks to compensate for its diminishing stockpile on the back of continuing support for Ukraine. So can you tell us more? Right. Uh, to uh, define what's exactly going on, we're not actually providing ammunition to be used in Ukraine, but mm. rather providing U- the U.S. to refill what they've uh, used up in terms of providing support for Ukraine. Uh, this was confirmed by Defense Ministry spokesperson Tanagyu on Tuesday when asked about the ministry's position on the Ukrainian ambassador's request for talks with Saud on the provision of lethal weapons. Uh, the spokesperson said, aside from the ongoing negotiation, Saul's stance against providing lethal weapons to Kyiv remains unchanged. 
The U.S. had previously restocked its ammo supply through a deal with South Korea uh, before, after sending much of its reserves to Ukraine. Meanwhile, Russia has expressed disappointment following the South Korean government's decision to expand existing export restrictions against Moscow. Well, according to Russia's TASS and Sputnik, Foreign Ministry spokesperson Maria Zakharova issued a statement on Monday warning that Seoul's move will not only damage bilateral ties but also impact cooperation to secure stability on the Korean peninsula. Criticizing Seoul's latest decision to comply with anti-Russia policies led by the U.S. and other Western nations, the spokesperson said it demonstrates Korea's limited ability to independently enforce policies concerning Russia. Last week, Seoul's trade ministry expanded the list of items requiring state authorization to be exported to Russia and Belarus from 57 to 798, in compliance with the international community's export controls. The items deemed highly likely to be diverted into weapons include oil and gas refining equipment, machine tools, bearings, heat exchangers, fully assembled vehicles worth over $50,000, steel products, and chemical goods. South Korea decided to participate in international sanctions last March, soon after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Russia included South Korea in its list of 48 unfriendly countries. Sticking with diplomatic headlines, the foreign ministry held a meeting with some family members of Japan's wartime forced labour victims to brief them on the progress of consultations with Tokyo on compensation. So what do we know about what they talked about? Well, on Tuesday, Foreign Minister Park Jin met with some victims of Japan's wartime forced labor and their family members to brief them on the government's plan for compensation. Park told reporters he came to personally meet the victims and families, listen to their opinions, and seek a desirable diplomatic resolution on the issue. In its first such meeting with victims' families, the ministry is expected to talk about progress regarding consultations with Tokyo and Seoul's proposed creation of a fund to compensate the victims. Uh, participants of Tuesday's meeting included families of victims who won a damage suit, damages suit rather, against Japanese firms in a Supreme Court ruling, and those whose court cases were ongoing. And finally, the National Assembly Speaker Kim Jin-pyo emphasized the need to expand immigration in the country as a way to tackle the chronically low birth rate. Right, this could be an option to resolve the issue that continues to plague South Korea, low birth rate issues. This came during Monday's luncheon hosted by the Global Elim Foundation, which was founded by Yoido Full Gospel Church to support multicultural families in the country and assist foreigners with resettlement here. The speaker said South Korea is seeking to accept more immigrants by establishing a separate immigration agency. Seoul Mayor Oh Se-hoon was also at the event. He said there are about 430,000 foreigners residing in the capital, or about 4.5% of the city's population. He also pledged to provide greater support to foreigners staying here in the long term. That's all for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates. Thank you so much for having me. Main opposition Democratic Party chair Lee Jae-myung managed to avoid arrest on Monday after a vote at the National Assembly resulted in a rejection of the prosecution's request to detain him on charges of corruption and bribery. But the final tally was far tighter than expected and the result has rattled his party. 
To look closer at the result, what this means for the cases concerning E and the ensuing political fallout, we have joining us on the line now reporter Yi Youngmin from the Korea Times. Izzy, thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me. So let's break down the results first. Can you sum up the results of yesterday's vote? Of course. So the motion to strip Lee Jae-myung of his parliamentary privilege to remain exempt from arrest and prosecution was rejected at the plenary session of the National Assembly yesterday. Out of 297 lawmakers present, 139 voted yes and 138 voted no. 11 votes were invalid and 9 abstained. The yes votes outnumbered the no votes, but the motion failed to pass because it fell short of the majority, which should have been 149 of the 297 lawmakers present. And this was because under the related National Assembly Act, a majority of the lawmakers present is needed to pass a motion regardless of the number of no votes, invalid votes and abstentions combined. Right, so because the Democratic Party has a significant majority with 169 lawmakers at the National Assembly, it was widely expected that the result uh, would be in favour of E, that the request by the prosecution to arrest E would be voted down easily. In fact, the DP initially predicted that the motion would be defeated by an overwhelming majority of up to 175 votes against. That would include votes from other minor parties as well but only 138 rejected it. So what happened? How many of his own party votes did he lose? Well, at least 31 no votes came from the Democratic Party of Korea, the DPK. All of 169 DPK lawmakers voted, but there were only 138 no votes, as you said, meaning 31 went the other way. Some of them apparently went into yes votes, which came uh, 18 votes higher than the, in, uh, than the expected minimum of 121. The 121, I should mention, is the sum of 114 votes from the ruling People Power Party and seven from two minor opposi- oppositions combined. The remaining dozen of votes went invalid or were abstentions. And I have a comment from a previous reporting by a KBS reporter who quoted a pro-Lee DP lawmaker that 31 is a number that was shocking, quote-unquote, much higher than the previous anticipated. And the reporter quoted another DP lawmaker who said the outcome was effectively a no vote, a vote of no confidence in Lee. Right, so that means some 20% of his own party uh, did not vote to support him. So why were there so many defections? What made those DP lawmakers vote for the arrest of E? Right, uh, a considerable uh, considerable number of DPK lawmakers are essentially agreeing that the legal risks of having Yi Jae-myung as party chief is mounting and will continue to build up in the months to come. Their collective judgment is backed up in part by the ongoing corruption allegations increasingly corroborated by the prosecution. And prosecutors have statements of key figures involved, which they say are pinpointing to the specific circumstances that helped advance the interests of Lee Jae-myung and a handful of his cronies and his former and current aides. 
Okay, so what has been the fallout? How have rival parties been reacting to this outcome? Well, first of all, the DP floor leader Park Kungun said this morning that he found it very difficult to say that the outcome was in line with what the party leadership thought was a general consensus during the parla- uh, party assembly. He said that the party should uh, and will take this moment to reflect the meaning of the votes and the role of the party leadership. However, he said the outcome should not mean confusion or division for the party, adding that the lawmakers should maintain a unified front at a time of external uncertainties. Okay, so that's the DP, Lee Myung's party. What about the ruling People Power Party? Right. Uh, the ruling party mounted political offensive, characterizing the outcome as essentially, quote-unquote, a politically approved motion. And People Power Party Emergency Committee head Chong Jin-seok said yesterday that the overwhelming no votes tested by DPK lawmakers is, in essence, a, quote-unquote, political death sentence to Lee Jae-myung. He further underscored that Lee Jae-myung should take the razor-sharp margin of only one vote as a sobering reminder of how criticisms against the party chief is brewing within the party. And Jung jin also said the ruling People Power Party lost the vote due practically to technicality and that the outcome carries a weight equal or greater than the motion actually passing. And similarly, People Power Party floor leader uh, held a press conference shortly after the vote stressing that the narrow margin is a de facto distrust and disapproval of Ijeonyeon. And he called for the resignation of Ijeonyeon. And People Power Party spokesperson Chang Dong-hyuk issued a commentary saying that he was glad that many DP lawmakers voted with conscience and responsibility for the public. And he further said that it was time for Ijeonyeon himself to voluntarily step down as party leader and appear before the court to undergo a review of validity of his arrest warrant sought by the prosecution. And what about the minor justice party, uh, the progressive party that has often uh, been an ally of the DP uh, in the past? What have they said? Well, uh, six members of the minor opposition justice party said yesterday, ahead of the National Assembly vote, that they all agreed to vote yes on the motion in accordance with the party platform, where they seek to abolish the parliamentary privilege of lawmakers on the exemption of arrest and prosecution, which is otherwise called immunity. And Justice Party leader Lee Jong-mi said during a press conference that she looked forward to taking a valuable step forward National Assembly reform and political reform. And she further under- underlined that it was Lee Jae-myung himself who called for the abolition of such privileges a year ago, saying that DPK uh, lawmakers refusing to maintain consistency, citing political oppression, will certainly end up weakening their argument and kicking uh, the can down the road for good, to, so to speak. And she said the DPK should understand the previous efforts of the DPK to reform politics have repeatedly failed due to self-sabotaging, self-serving drives and motivations of this sort. Right. Before we take a look at what comes next, perhaps we should take a look back at the charges against him. Can you recap them for us? Uh, What uh, do the prosecution want to arrest him for? 
Right. Uh, first, as for the Daejangdong and Wide land and city development projects, he faces three charges: violating anti-corruption laws, conflict of interest, conflict of interest prevention laws, and breach of duty. As for the Songnam Football Club uh, scandal, he faces a third-party bribery. I believe we recapped this issue quite in depth in detail last time, mm. but I should uh, mention this time that the latest prosecution investigation is over allegations that Sangbangwer Group, a local consumer innerware maker, engineered the scheme and sent eight million dollars to North Korea with the help of then Gyeonggi-jisa Lee Jae-myung. The prosecution has yet to question Lee Jae-myung over this latest allegation, but I believe uh, developments will be made in the weeks to come. Right, so Lee Jae-myung has not been indicted yet for the Sangbangul case, so that means further indictments are expected to come as well. So then what happens next? Do you think the prosecution uh, will send additional requests uh, for the parliament and ask for the arrest of a DP chief related to this case as well? Well, that remains to be seen because observers say that the motion failing to pass the National Assembly has only added fuel to the fire for the prosecution to seek a similar motion in the months to come. The prosecution is reportedly planning to indict him without physical detention next week at the earliest. And the charges there are over aforementioned corruption involving Daejangdong, Wiedie, land and city development projects, as well as Hongnam FC scandal. And many believe that the prosecution will seek a new arrest warrant request with added charges of corruption. The prosecution issued a statement yesterday and said that it, quote, regrets that the court's decision uh, came despite the gravity of the crime and high likelihood of evidence destruction, end quote. And the prosecution also added that it will take a closer look to strengthen their case. Okay, so we could see another vote at the National Assembly soon as well then. Finally, how do you think the DP chief will handle the increasing political pressure and the investigations zeroing in on him? Uh, What options does he have? Well, he has very few options because uh, he almost uh, has no choice but to resort to activities to uh, meet the public, including volunteer work at school cafeterias and scheduled visits to tra- uh, traditional markets. He will continue to underscore the need for government policy support to tackle inflation, among other issues closely tied to the everyday life of the public. And many say this is a desperate tactic to distract focus, but others say him distancing himself from key political issues at hand is the only available course of action at this point. And a few say he will step down as party leader, but the pressure will continue throughout the course of the prosecution investigation with his leadership skills put to constant test. Well, the vote on Monday revealed that he is perhaps facing more opposition within his party than he might have been expecting. And uh, many also saying that this could be a turning point for the party, which is uh, especially important ahead of the legislative elections next year. We'll have to leave it there for today. We've been speaking to reporter Lee Young-min from The Korea Times, who's been walking us through the situation. Thank you for briefing us today. Thank you. Bye. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. 
The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index gained 10.21 points, or 0.42% on Tuesday, to close the day at 2,412.85. The tech-heavy KOSDAQ also rose, gaining 11.30 points, or 1.45%, to close at 791.60. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 0.41 against the U.S. dollar, closing the day at 1,322.61. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. Next up, it's Korea Trending, our daily segment where we take a look at some of the other news headlines that have been trending online today. And for that, we have our contributor, Diane Yu, with us once again. Diane, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, Jango. Welcome back. Yes, it's good to be back. It's <laughs> good to see you again. Okay, so what stories do you have for us today? First, we'll discuss the South Korean government's latest efforts to manage rice production in the midst of shrinking rice consumption. Second, ahead of March 1st Independence Movement Day, we'll take a closer look at why the culture of displaying Korean flags on national holidays is disappearing. Third, we'll find out which star player in the Korean Women's Volleyball League is out for the rest of the season. Okay, let's go to that first story then about rice. Can you mm-hmm. tell us more? Uh, the saying that Koreans run on rice is not so valid anymore. According to the results of the 2022 Grain Consumption Survey announced by Statistics Korea, annual rice consumption per capita last year averaged 56.7 kilograms, down 0.2 kilograms from a year ago. This is the lowest number ever recorded by the statistics agency, decreasing to half the level of 30 years ago. Along with the decrease in demand, the price ri- price of rice is also dropping. It's mm. simple economics as the demand is smaller than the supply. Mm. So the government has stepped in to manage rice production. First of all, the goal is to eliminate varieties with good harvests, including Shindongjin rice. But farmers are strongly opposed to such a move, saying it was too hastily made. Okay, so can you tell us more about this particular rice variety then, Shindongjin? Right. It has been dominating the country's cultivated area for several years. The rice grains are thicker than other types of rice, so it has a good texture. It also it is also a variety that brings about high yields, so both consumers and farmers are satisfied. So you might wonder, then why is the government trying to eradicate this type of rice? And that's a fair question. Uh, a high yield is an agricultural product's strength, but with the current low consumption, that means a lot of surpluses are left in stock. Mm. So the government is reviewing a policy of stopping the purchase of Shindongjin rice from next year and not supplying seeds from the year after. What it's planning to do is to produce varieties with better taste than varieties with high yields. Right, I see. But as you hinted, this sudden decision must come as quite a shock to rice farmers. Of course, especially farmers in North Cholla province, and it has the highest share of Shindongjin cultivation nationwide. Farmers in that region are closely watching the Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs final decision. Shinwon Sik, director of the Agriculture, Livestock and Food Bureau of North Cholla Provincial Office, argued that farmers also need a period of adaptation to new varieties and propose a grace period of more than three years to the ministry. Amid the farmer's strong backlash, we'll have to see if the government will be able to push forward with its plan. Yes, rice is still an important staple in Korea, but times are changing, and Mm -hmm. this is a societal, political, and economic issue that is going to continue to come up. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, let's uh, move on to our next story for now. What do you have for us? So I still remember when I was young, the national flags or taegukki in Korean fluttering on the windows of each household on national holidays. Mm. But looking around, it's really hard to find even one household that puts out the flag to commemorate the days. Right. It's likely going to be the same tomorrow on March 1st, Independence Movement Day. This is because many recently built apartments do not even install taegukki flagpoles in the first place because they say it impairs the aesthetics. Also, the culture that actively encourage raising the taegukki in schools or local governments is disappearing. Right. And also the taegukki flag is uh, somewhat of a symbol of the far-right conservatives in Korea right. as well. So it has become a bit of a politically sensitive symbol, yeah. which is probably another reason why uh, people are not so keen to brandish it. Mm-hmm. The situation has even led to it becoming uh, difficult to find a store that sells taegukki flags, right? Right, that's what it looks like. A 40-year-old stationery store owner in Seoul's Gangnam district said, quote, I used to sell taegukki in my store, but with only one or two being sold a year, I don't keep stock of the flags anymore, end mm. quote. Uh, it was the same story in Jongno district, where there's even a street that's designated for toys and stationery. A store owner alone along the street said that they no longer carry flags for multiple reasons such as the demands dropping as well as a hike in the uh, wholesale price. Yes, I'm sure the rise of the internet has also contributed to it as Mm -hmm. well. It's just easier to buy online nowadays. Uh, We should also perhaps explain tomorrow's holiday for any listeners who might not know and why the flag is so heavily associated with it, Diane. Right. The March 1st Independence Movement Day, called Samiljar in Korean, is a national holiday to commemorate the day when the Korean people protested against Japanese colonial rule and announced the proclamation of independence to inform the world of Korea's intention for independence. So it goes way back to March 1st, 1919, when the largest protest movement by Korean people, including students, calling for independence took place. Though the movement failed to bring about its paramount goal, it was significant in ways that it strengthened and solidified national unity. So for those who have taegukki at their homes, please raise the flag for tomorrow and remember what our Mm. forefathers did to give us what we have right now. Yes, you will still see plenty of flags lining the streets and on Mm -hmm. public buildings, but we are talking about the decreasing number on uh, private households and buildings flying the flag. It will also inevitably raise questions about whether the country is becoming perhaps less patriotic or Mm -hmm. nationalistic. I think that's not something that could be answered lightly, but uh, fewer flags is a trend that we are seeing in recent years. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's turn to our last story now, and it's about a star player missing the rest of the season in the local women's volleyball league, right? Right. We have unfortunate news for volleyball fans, especially if you're a fan of the V-League's famous spiker, Kim Yijin. The Hwasong IBK Alto's opposite spiker underwent knee surgery, which in fact put her out for the rest of the season. According to the IBK Altos on Wednesday, the 31-year-old spiker underwent meniscus surgery on her right knee as she was suffering from pain since the beginning of the season. It's said that Kim will go through a rehabilitation period of uh, about about a year. Yes, that's certainly worrisome news for her and the fans. Kim has been 
on the same team for more than a decade now, right? She has. Kim has been with her current team for about 12 years and this season signed a contract with an annual salary of 600 million won, which is about $455,000. She has main, uh, mainly been playing as a mid uh, middle blocker for about three seasons since the 2019 to 2020 season. She showed the possibility of switching positions by occasionally changing from time to time. However, Kim Hyejin's post-2020 was not smooth. She has some ups and downs from rehabilitation and surgery to remove bone fragments in her right knee. During an off-season interview last year, Kim said that she plans to focus on taking care of her health by weight training and taking medicine. But the situation did not get any better. Since the beginning of the season, Kim has been unable to start due to knee pain, so the team's outside hitter, Yuk Seo-young, filled in as a backup. And understand that Kim is about to become a free agent after this season ends right. as well. How will the injury affect her future with the club? Under the premise of renewing her contract, the club would likely offer Kim two paths as a player, such as changing her position to an opposite backup or a middle blocker and lowering her salary. Of course, the final decision is up to the club, but it will be difficult to easily part ways with a spiker who has been part of the team for over 10 years. An official from the club said, quote, We plan to provide maximum support for Kim Hee-jin's quick return, and we ask for your encouragement and support so that Kim can make a healthy comeback, end quote. Indeed, we hope her recovery goes well for now. Uh, that's where we'll leave it for today's Career Trending. Thank you for those stories, Diane, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. The 2008 hit television series Painter of the Wind, or Parame Hwawon in Korean, was based on Lee Jang-myung's historical novel of the same name, published in 2007. Then in April this year, over 15 years after the novel first met its readers, the book will be published in English. Translator Stella Kim is finally bringing this best-selling work to an international audience. Uh, she won the 2014 LTI Career Award for Inspiring Translators and the 2016 Career Times Modern Korean Literature Translation Award. And she joins us in the studio now for Touch Basin's Hole this week. Ms. Kim, hello, and it's great to have you on the show today. Thank you for having me. So first, congratulations on having the book coming out soon. It's going to be quite special to have this uh, book available in English, I feel. Uh, we'll get to that in just a bit. But first, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself for our audience? Uh, what led you to become a literary translator? Um, well, I grew up in the US and I was always interested in Korea and Korean history in general. So I ended up studying you know, was remotely close to um, Korean history, which, you know, there wasn't a major, I guess, in my college. So I ended up studying East Asian studies, and that got me, you know, um, interested in studying Korean history. Um, so I uh, went to grad school to study modern Korean history. Mm. And while I was, at, you know, in that program, Mr. Um, Kim Yong-ha, um, the South Korean writer was there as a artist in residence. Mm. Um, so as I was taking, um, I think it was a Korean lit class, he came to like give a talk, and that was where I first sort of discovered Korean literature. Um, and honestly, I sort of got into 
um, literary translation sort of arrogantly thinking that I could <laughs> translate so much better than, you know, all of the mm. translations that are out there. Um, so, and, you know, when I got into it, I realized how difficult it was. So now I'm very much humbled <laughs> <laughs> and um, respect all of the great translators out there. Um, yeah, but that was pretty much how I got into literary translation. What was it about translation that you came to discover was difficult? Um, I suppose I originally, I guess, um, thought that translation was all about, uh, you know, just taking Korean words and converting them into English. Right. So um, directly translating right, everything. Right. So it uh, has 100% perfect meaning. Right. Except the perfect meaning doesn't necessarily come from translating all the words on the pages mm. correctly, I suppose, into, or accurately into mm. English. Um, there was a lot more subtext that you had to watch out for, just kind of the context that you had to give. Um, and all of those were kind of really difficult, I suppose, um, when I started translating. But you still must have enjoyed it because you kept going. and uh, Yeah, I do. It's a lot of fun, um, even though it is still very much difficult. So, yeah. And I think I've been pretty much doing, you know, translation and interpretation all my life because I had to do that for my parents um, when I was growing up in the U.S. So, yeah, it sort of came to me naturally and I kind of was too lazy, I suppose, to switch <laughs> careers. <laughs> Okay, well, you've had uh, wonderful translations before, but we have you here today because of A Painter of the Wind. It's set to be published in English for the first time in April. Yeah. Uh, the novel written by Lee Jung-myung sold over a million copies in South Korea and was adapted into a hit TV series in 2008, as we said. How did you come across this book? How did you come to be the one to translate it? <laughs> Honestly, I wasn't the one who chose to translate this book. It was Hannah Pang, my co-translator, sure. who first started translating it. And she approached me um, and asked me if I'd be interested in translating. Um, I actually auditioned for another book that she was going to um publish mm. um, and I didn't get that one um, and instead she offered me this one um, which I'm grateful for. So did end. you know the book but before then? No I actually had no idea that there was this book or the popular TV series I hadn't heard of it so it was my first time um, discovering both book and the series. And then when you did read it and watch the series what did you think? Was this do you feel that this was something right away that you would? Uh, I very much to? like the book. Um, I was sort of afraid to watch the series um, just because I was sort of intimidated that this book was already <laughs> so hugely popular in Korea. Mm. Um, so I, I didn't. I only ended up watching like snippets of it. But, um, but I very, very liked the book, um, and um, thankfully, Hannah was kind enough to offer me um, the co-translator position, I suppose, in a way. So, so you did feel some hesitance or pressure in translating this work then because of its uh, popularity? A little bit, a little bit, for sure, because I didn't, you know, want to sort of make this... I didn't... I kind of wondered if I'd be skilled enough, I suppose, as a translator to bring this book um, in, for, to the English readers. So, um, yeah, so there was definitely a bit of hesitance there. Um, but 
I really enjoy the process of translating it, and I really hope that the readers get to enjoy it too. Can you tell us a little bit about it? It's a historical fiction work set in the late 18th century during the Joseon Dynasty, and mm-hmm. it's uh, about a renowned court painter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, two painters, actually, Kim Hongdo and Shin Yunbok. Um, and it is a historical fiction, and in, and there's like a big twist that I kind of want to re- um, leave for the readers to find sure, out. Sure, of course. <laughs> um, but... Yeah, it's sort of a mystery novel, detective novel, too, in a way. Um, You get to look for sort of the murderer, I suppose, in the book. Um, And there's, like, codes that you have to crack, or, you know, the characters crack. Um, But, yeah, it would be, I think, interesting for both, like, the Korean or historical fiction buffs, I suppose, and um, mystery novel buffs as well. It must have been quite challenging to translate a historical uh, a work that's set in uh, the historical fiction because there are a lot of things that perhaps aren't easily translatable, especially for a non-Korean or non-Korean-speaking audience. Right. Um, yeah, there was this one huge section where there was sort of wordplay between the Korean pronunciation of Chinese characters and the Chinese pronunciation of Chinese characters, which was really difficult to translate. Um, And yeah, that part required a lot of editing um, (laughs) on the editor's part as well. And um, but I just hope that it sort of got through. But even the historical context of uh, perhaps some of the things that happen in a royal court that people might not be familiar with. Mm, Yeah, we, Hannah and I sort of discussed this at length and we decided to um, put in footnotes, which the author was slightly against. Mm. He wanted wanted the book to, you know, read sort of really smoothly as it had been written in English. Um, But I think giving that kind of historical context through footnotes um, would help our readers who are, you know, coming across these strange-looking words for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned your co-translator, Hannah uh, Pang. How was that to work with a co-translator? Have you ever done that before? And what was that process like? Mm, I've never actually um, co-translated a book before this right. one. So uh, it was very new to me. But, um, you know, most of the translation sort of happens right where you're sitting with a computer. Right. So there, the process itself wasn't very different, I suppose, but it was really nice to have, you know, someone to talk to about these difficult um, words or expressions um, there were to translate. And um, Hannah did, like, prepare a glossary. Um, so we shared um, a list of terms and how to translate them into um, English or whether to, I suppose, transliterate them them and things like that. So it was kind of nice having sort of that, you know, support um, in a way, because when you're translating alone, you don't ever really get that. Sure, I can imagine. Did you take bits of the text then? Were you, was that divided or how does that mm. work? Oh, I should mention, yeah. No, no. So we did um, translate, the, so there were two volumes to the book. Um, Hannah translated the first volume mm. and then I translated the second and um, what happened sort of was she would translate the, like the first chapter 
And because um, the author, Lee Jong-myung, actually speaks English fluently, um, we, she would send you know, the chapters that, finish, that she'd finished to him, and he'd um, sort of give comments and suggestions. Um, so he so was he very actively did, yep, involved, involved in the process in this then. One. Yep, yep. Um, That's interesting. And because the book had been written, you know, years ago, um, there were things that he wanted to change in the Korean text mm. as well for the English readers, um, or not just for the English readers, but also for the Korean public as well. Um, so we were able to incorporate those changes um, into the translation as well. So, um, so when she sent, like, you know, her translation, um, Mr. Lee would give comments and send it back and I would read over hers her translation to sort of you know keep the general tone um, and the translation style um, the same but I'm not sure exactly <laughs> how much I was able to do that. Well the book it's almost set to be published soon so it is very exciting. What do you expect or hope international readers take away from the book? Because I'm sure that uh, that's something you must have been thinking about uh, a lot when you were translating. Uh, <laughs> when I do translate a novel, I suppose I don't necessarily think about the readers. I do, I think about how to sort of um, make this book that I loved reading come to life in a different mm. language, mm. Um, which is, I guess, in a way, thinking about the readers. Um, but... Uh, yeah, so I sort of translated without necessarily the readers in mind, but I do hope that um, that this Paramehua um, and the Painter of the Wind um, becomes a great addition to the wealth of um, Korean literature that are being translated out there. Um, and there are like this um, book also has I think over thirty paintings by Kim Hongdo and Shin Yunbok in beautiful colors. Mm. So I do hope that um, that the readers get to enjoy not just the book itself, but also the great paintings. Yes, it sounds like it's going to be a great book then, especially with those paintings. I think that is something that the readers really will enjoy as well. Well, uh, I cannot wait for our international audience to discover this work and your translation. Painter of the Wind will be coming out soon in April. Uh, we'll have to leave it there. We've been speaking to translator Stella Kim for Touch Basins Hull. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you. Did you enjoy this segment? You can discover more segments like this throughout the week on Korea 24. On Monday, we bring you news from the world of sports around the peninsula. Then on Tuesday, notable guests from various fields join us and give us insight into their lives and work. Are you a fan of books? Then tune in on Wednesday for Korea Book Club where our book critic helps us unpack works by Korean authors or written on Korea. Go on an adventure with us every Thursday as we take a look at Korea's hidden gems with Explore Korea. And on Friday, listen to what our film critics have to say about the latest movie releases from both home and abroad. We have all that you need all in one place on Korea 24. We've come now to our final segment, Morning Edition Preview. This is where we take a look at some interesting stories or reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Korea Times and the Korea Herald. And for that, we have joining us in the studio now our star editor, Richard Larkin. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, jang OK, so what do you have for us today? First, we head to Park Ga-young's article in the entertainment section of the Korea Herald. The article is about a French wind quintet called Le France Francais. 
He will return to South Korea to perform a concert in Seoul on Wednesday. Okay, so a French wind quintet, yes. les vents français. Interesting, okay. Something a bit different for our audiences in Korea. Right. Can you tell us some more about this group? Sure. The group was established in 1997 and consists of five renowned musicians who play the flute, the clarinet, the oboe, the bassoon, and the horn. The article mentions that each member has a unique and strong character as both people and musicians, and that they also have their own individual careers. I mentioned earlier that the group is returning to Korea. That's because they have performed in the country before. One interesting fact I learned from reading the article is that the founder of the group, Paul Meyer, served as the associate conductor of the Seoul Philharmonic Orchestra for three seasons from 2006. Oh, okay, that is interesting. So there's a strong connection to Korea then. So what will they perform at the upcoming concert? Well, the ensemble will perform pieces from Darius Milhaud and Francis Poulenc, together with pianist Eric Lesage. The two were part of a 1920s group of six composers called Lesis. For our listeners who may be interested in going to the concert, it will take place at the Lotte Concert Hall in southeastern Seoul. Ticket prices range from 60000 to 130000 won. That's around 45 to $100. Okay, so it's not cheap. We're used no. to talking about free events on this <laughs> segment so much, but it does sound like it will be quite a special event for music lovers in Korea. Yeah, quite unique. Yes. Okay, let's move on to our second story. What do you have for us? So Japanese anime films have been quite popular in Korea. The most recent example I can think of is the first Slam Dunk, which was released this year. Mm. It gathered 3.57 million emissions as, as of Monday. The movie was actually talked about on Movie Spotlight segment before. Yeah, it's been a huge hit. A very unexpected, well, perhaps not unexpected, but it is <laughs> a bit a huge hit, definitely. Sure. And if you look a bit further back in time to 2017, the film Your Name was released in Korea and sold 3.79 million tickets. Mm. It's still the highest grossing anime film here. It's also a film I really enjoyed. Yes, it was uh, very well critically received uh, everywhere, I believe. Yes. Well, the director of Your Name, Makato Shinkai, will come to Korea in March. That is what Kwak Yun-soo's article in the Entertainment and Arts section of the Korea Times is about. OK, so why is he coming back to Korea? To promote his new film, Suzume. The director and the film's lead voice actor, Nanoka Hara, will be in the country from March 7th to the 9th. The article mentions that they will attend promotional events for the upcoming film, including a press conference on the 8th. Let me give you a little bit of information about the film. Mm. Suzume follows a 17-year-old high school girl who helps a mysterious young man prevent a series of deadly natural disasters. It will hit local theatres on the 8th. Okay, as we said, your name was a big hit here in Korea. So it'll be interesting to see whether uh, this new film can follow that success as well. It has potential. The film sold over 10 million tickets in Japan, which made it the third biggest box office title last year there. It was also invited to this year's Berlin Film Festival. Okay, so I guess we'll see. Okay, that uh, brings us to the end of today's uh, Morning Edition preview. Thank you for bringing us those stories and we'll see you again next time. Thank you. And that's all from us here on Career 24. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow. So join us again then to continue to get your daily dose of career news analysis. Till then, we hope you have a great day. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you as always for listening. Goodbye.